Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Roots and Roots Show with your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you history and music from the Black American diaspora. Greg and his guest's goal is to root the show's information in your psyche, providing you the roots to expand knowledge within your community. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid. Well, I want to say good evening or good afternoon, wherever you're listening to this program around the world. This is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Root Show. And as the intro says, we try to track, tackle issues here and get to the root of an issue and learn history and learn a lot of history. And tonight I'm just happy to do the show that it may make some people upset. It may make some people upset because a lot of folks don't want to talk about this issue, but it's always for some reason it remains, even in the 21st century, in the news. You know, you'll see something about this subject, the subject being blackface, but we're talking about a particular form of entertainment that was big, and some people will say it's still big in some circles of this uh, universe. I'm talking about blackface minstrel shows. And I'm honored to have on the author of the new book, The Blackface Minstrel Show, in mass media, 20th century performances on radio, records, film, and television. And I believe Tim Brooks is on the line to author the book. Are you there, Tim? Yes, I'm here. I am so happy to have you on. I just want to thank you for writing a book that, you know, that a lot of us would say is controversial. It is, but it needed to be written. And I'm just surprised. I know there have been some books about minstrels and minstrel shows in the past, but yours is like, just talks about everything. You break out everything from radio, television, Broadway, vaudeville, everything showing that. And I want to say um, that we're not, even though we'll be talking about blackface in one sense, we're not going to be doing just performers who just did blackface like the Amos and Andy show, the Goslin and Freeman. I'm going to do a separate show about the Amos and Andy show because they, these were blackface performers who started in the minstrel theater, but we're going to talk about the history of the minstrel show and how it's affecting, you know, today, how it's still in a sense, the lingering effects of minstrel shows are going on even today. And the first thing I want to ask you, uh, Tim, is um, how did you come about writing this book? Because I know part of it was from your previous book, which I love. I have that book, Lost Sounds, about the dawn of black entertainment as far as black musicians being on record. So how did you arrive actually at this particular book? Well, Greg, uh, many of my books, uh, most of them, I think, started out as uh, much smaller projects. I was going to write an article, for example, uh, and that grew into the Lost Sounds book you refer to. Uh, And here I was interested in the recordings specifically that were made of uh, replicating minstrel first parts. It's a very popular type of recording in the early 1900s. Uh, nobody studied them or written about them or anything. This was 20 years ago. And, and the idea was to explore that. But as I got into the subject, it got larger and larger. And uh, I realized when I was reading all of uh, you know prior books uh, about the minstrel show that, that nobody had dealt with it past the 1800s, basically. 
Uh, and of course, I say of course, <laughs> a lot of people didn't know, in fact, that it was not only continued on a local level after that, but it was very big in movies and in radio and even in television. So uh, the, the subject just grew, uh, and I certainly had no anticipation that the book would finally come to uh, culmination at a time when the subject is so much in the news and so controversial right now. It certainly is. And I want you to talk about the, the Big Bang moment, February 6, 1843. Talk about that, because that's a key moment, not only in as far as minstrel shows, but as far as entertainment in America. Yes, it certainly is. And, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand about the minstrel show. Uh, it, it was, in a lot of ways, the first American-originated type of entertainment. Uh, before that, everything was imported from, from Britain, basically. Even though we had uh, won our independence in the 1700s, uh, the, the commerce with England continued and culture continued. And Shakespeare and Hamlet and plays, those were the fancy plays of the time. Uh, drinking songs and English actors toured the U.S. constantly. Everything was England, England, England. And by the 1820s, uh, particularly in the that, that era, there was a real feeling in the country that, that uh, we were our own country. We should have our own kind of culture. And the origins of the minstrel shows and the origins of blackface, actually, were not so much about blacks, ironically. They were about uh, expressing the kind of uh, egalitarianism that, uh, ironically, that America uh, aspired to, not the stratified uh, cultures of Europe, not with kings and queens and dukes and very rigid social hierarchies. So it was a big hit with the uh, ordinary people, with the middle class and the lower class, and it made fun of everybody. Uh, it not only African Americans, it made fun of, of uh, Northerners and Southerners and Westerners. There were uh, river boatsmen and, and New England Yankees. Everybody was was a fair target in those days. And it was an expression of America's irreverence and America's optimism, which also was true in politics then, too. That's when Andrew Jackson and the whole populist movement uh, uh, took over and, and really changed the course of the country. So it was a, a, a real expression of, of American values at that time. You know, I... I understand that in one sense, in reading the book, I, I see where you're coming from. But on the other hand, as an African-American man, I mean, the, the context is about race as far as why, you know, why this particular form was chosen. This group of people being Africans, and at the time the majority of us were enslaved, were chosen for, you know, for this type of entertainment. And it's something that, you know, I know... Some folks will say, well, that was the time and things were different. But the undercurrent is the issue of race, the black, you know, just the black face, the corking up, the little, the curly wigs folks use and using dialect. And I know at the time there were a lot of dialecticians during that time, as you were saying, that, you know, the Jewish dialects, Asian dialects, you name it. But the predominance was basically African-American way of talking. And what, I mean, what do you say to that, that that pretext was, you know, it had to do with the issue of race? Well, 
there's two ways to look at history. Uh, one is uh, called presentism, which is kind of looking through our eyes and, and our values. Another is looking through, called historicism, which is looking through the eyes of, of people then. And uh, there's no question that it was racial and it was demeaning, uh, clearly, to African-Americans at that time, uh, who, which, as you say, were largely enslaved. Not entirely, but largely. And uh, But it wasn't it's it's hard to put yourself back in 1843, for example, or 1845, even if you're a, a fairly liberal uh, northerner, maybe you're a uh, abolitionist. But even people who felt that way uh, felt that uh, this this was not necessarily a, a racist kind of argument. They were concerned with uh, abolishing, if they were abolitionists, with abolishing slavery, for example, but that didn't mean that they thought there should be full equality between the races or intermarriage or something like that. I mean, things progress over time that way. So if you put yourself back in that period, it looks different than when you look at it now. And and those are both very legitimate uh, arguments and ways to look at things because hopefully we're more uh, accepting of differences today than they were back then. But they were in a time when, uh, as I say, their focus was on – uh, a country that had all this potential that had now we we say expansionist and we're going to this this underpopulated co- uh, continent for example well that did a lot to the Native Americans didn't it <laughs> uh, but oh, yeah, at the time yeah. but but at the time that's not what they were thinking of they were thinking of uh, you know there's all this land out there that that there aren't many people on uh, it's also there are all these uh, and 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 the slavery might, you know, there were people who were certainly against that and were fighting against it even in 1843. However, they didn't go all the way to equality then. No, they certainly did. And by the way, listeners, you can join in the conversation with myself and uh, Tim Brooks, the author of Blackface Minstrel Show in Mass Media. The number here is 563-999-3479. That's 563-999. Three, four, seven, nine. And, yeah, so let's get back to the whole Big Bang, because prior to that, you had um, Dan Rice. Talk a little bit about Dan Rice and how the whole thing of blackface entertainment becomes this, rather than a singular person, a group. Yes, well, in the 1820s, and particularly in the 1830s, there were solo entertainers, uh, single actors who would black up and some of them had routines uh, that, that were very well known for, one of which was Jump Jim Crow, which was a song and a dance. Uh, and uh, so they, they made careers around uh, solo entertainers doing this. So that was already familiar to the public at the time, particularly in the North. And what happened in, in February of 1843 is that four of these solo entertainers, who were all out of work at the time, uh, got out, got together, and said, "Why don't we go on as a group, and we'll put on a whole show? It'll be the the whole evening, not just a single act. Uh, and the four of us will trade jokes back and forth. We'll sing songs, and we'll have some instruments. We'll play the banjo uh, and the uh, tambourine and and couple and a fiddle, and uh, we'll we'll make a group. And that's what that's what the minstrel show was. That's what happened in February of 1843." And it immediately struck a nerve. 
because it was like a party. It was these people interacting with each other as opposed to one person, and then it went on to some other act on the normal stage. And and that's what really caught the public's attention. And it uh, it was one of those moments where somebody did something really kind of different, and it really, really caught on. And then, of course, there were lots of imitators and others that came in that refined it and so forth. But that's, that's what happened, and that's where Daddy Rice uh, that you mentioned, um, he was one of those precursors who uh, whose kind of work led to the minstrel show in 1843. And, you know, talk about, too, um, Tim, of the, the, four, the four guys that did this. You know, what was the name? I'm trying to remember the name of the group that actually did this. Well, they called themselves the Virginia Minstrels, uh, and uh, the the name minstrel is interesting because the minstrels the, that name had meant court entertainers in in medieval times and in the uh, 16th century uh, and 17th century um, the sort of wandering entertainers solo entertainers not blackface necessarily so they adopted that name and said well we'll call ourselves the Virginia minstrels and that that was the template that uh, gave rise to the minstrel show that lasted then for a century afterwards that I traced in the book. Uh, and the uh, uh, Dan Emmett was one of the four, uh, uh, in fact, he was kind of the leader of the group, the Virginia Minstrels. And uh, But they didn't last very long, actually, the Virginia Minstrels. Uh, they, they broke up. They, they went to England, interestingly, within a couple of months, uh, but then they broke up and went their separate ways, and it was really Edwin Christie who founded Christie's Minstrels that, that took the next step and built it into the big industry that it became. And, you know, it's so funny because um, the name, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, they used to have a show, The New Christie Minstrels, and I never yes. knew what that, you know, who was Christie until I went to college. Years later, I said, oh, this is what this is about. Yeah, I wonder if many people in the 1960s realized who was being honored or celebrated with that name. I mean, he he was the uh, originator, really, of the Blackface Minstrels show, as we know it. Not the originator, because he took it from the Virginia Minstrels, but he's the one that built it into what it became, this this very big... Fine-tuned it, more or less. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, because I never knew that. And the thing, you know, that you mentioned in your book that I had never thought about as far as this was, this form of entertainment, you equate it to like Saturday Night Live. Yes. In the sense that it was that popular, I mean, in, in that popular, that people would like just wait for these, um, these folks to come to town. Well, it was all based on, on satire. Uh, and and on mockery, uh, you, you really, as I say, someplace you really had to have a thick skin in those days because you, no matter where you are in society, they were making fun of you. Uh, I mean, we we focus on and we should on on the uh, mockery of blacks, but there were mockery of everybody uh, in the original minstrel show. That was the whole idea. It was, it was really a class thing. It was the middle class. Uh, primarily, and the uh, and the lower class making fun of, of pretension and people who were, uh, you know, all kinds of things, all uh, uh, Irish uh, immigrants of different kinds, um, Chinese doesn't matter who it is, they would they would make fun of them in the minstrel show. Now the minstrel show changed over time. Uh, I'm describing what it was when it began in the 1840s. Right. 
as you got closer to the Civil War, the country – I mean, we think we're divided now. The country was, was really very badly divided over, over that uh, during the 1850s and the lead-up to the Civil War. There was a lot of violence, and uh, during that period, the minstrel show became darker. It became more political. It became more racist, really, uh, in the lead-up to the Civil War. Uh, then after the Civil War, it, it shifted again, and I get into that. But uh, there were changes over time. But as it began, it really was a Saturday Night Live. It was a making fun of everybody kind of show. And this wasn't, um, as far as actually going, because I was trying to see in the book how much did people pay to go see these shows. And I think I get out of it that it wasn't that much. It was not for, it wasn't like opera or something for the rich. Oh, It was for just the... Average, no, you're absolutely average right. white person at the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This this was entertainment for the ordinary people, uh, for the little people, for the for the and there was a great deal of poverty in the country, of course, then and, and huge disparities in wealth. Uh and uh this specifically was entertainment for uh the middle and lower classes. Now what what one of the things that Christie did uh, as he took that original germ of an idea that the uh, Virginia Minstrels had, had planted, was make it more family-friendly. So it, it's interesting that there's rarely, if ever, anything, any kind of sexual innuendo or any any of that kind of thing in a minstrel show. Uh, it's all jokes. It's all upbeat uh, songs. Uh, and it's it's like a party. And even the staging of it, if you think about it, with... Uh, Originally four men on the stage, but that quickly became six or eight or ten men or something like that. Uh, they were all on stage at once at the beginning of the show, the minstrel first part, the first act. Uh, and the audience, it was like they were part of the audience. Uh, they, they all could take part. Uh, individuals could get up and sing a song. Or the two end men on the two ends could could batter back and forth with jokes. Uh, it, it was like going to a party. It was fast-paced, it was upbeat, and it was clean. Uh, in, in terms of sexual stuff. So it, it, uh, yep. it really attracted the middle class and the lower class. The upper class basically didn't like it because they thought it was low class. Would you, you know, as I was reading your book and reading other things about menstrual shows, I was trying to equate it to what I know, the history of the Shakespearean theater, that that originally was for the lower class. And that's what people forget. And it wasn't for the rich. Yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, you're right. Historically, if you go back to the audiences that Shakespeare was writing for uh, in the 1600s, uh, you wonder how they even uh, understood some of his very, very literate uh, uh, dialogue and things that he would have in his plays. But of course, by the 1800s, uh, Shakespeare was considered high class. Uh, and right. Very, right. They were they were very uh, ex, uh, actors who were very famous, and they were very high class, and they would have reserved boxes in the seats, and they would wear jewels and so forth. So they it was considered high. Uh, Shakespeare was high class entertainment by then, uh, and the Mitzel show would make fun of Shakespeare and make fun of other plays that were for the elite and for the rich because that was one of their targets. You know, and the funny you know the thing that. I've been looking for, maybe I missed it in your book and some other books. I want to see, like, reviews of someone, you know, like, 
someone asking an audience member or audience member saying something about the shows in a sense like, I could imagine like a little child sitting there, this is clean entertainment, and saying, oh, mommy, why do they have that stuff on their face? And why are they talking that way? And well, I haven't seen happened? anything about that. Yeah, we, we don't know a great deal about the audiences to the shows, especially in this very early period. The the earliest minstrel shows were basically in the Northeast. The the actors, the the uh, the white people who put on the black makeup, they were they were largely Irish immigrants, uh, you know, who had gotten into the theater, and this was their opportunity. Uh, and the the audiences were presumably mostly white audiences at that time because you know theaters were segregated uh, in 1843, even in the North. Uh, and uh, you, you could not intermix audiences and that sort of stuff uh, because of the customs of that day. What happened pretty quickly, though, was that uh, there started to be some minstrel shows put on by African Americans themselves. Uh, a lot of these, most of them, in fact, were uh, hired by by white managers and white entrepreneurs. But the actors on on stage were, in fact, uh, African Americans. And though uh, uh, they brought a different kind of tone to the show, gradually at first, uh, after the Civil War, that became a very big field, uh, African-American minstrel shows. Uh, that's something that a lot of people don't know either. And, and they really yeah, changed and it's funny, the nature. When I, when I was talking about doing this show to some folks, and, you know, they had never heard of that. And that yes. told me I have to do this show because people had not heard about that aspect. And there is a quote, if I'm not mistaken, from Frederick Douglass, who the great orator, um, activist, political, you know, everything. Right. You know, he made a quote, and I'm just paraphrasing, like he was denouncing minstrel shows at one point, and then he saw a minstrel show was African-Americans, and he had a change. I'm not going to say he had a change of view, but he said this is something important for our people as far as getting us in the entertainment industry and showing what we can do. And I'm paraphrasing that. And maybe, you know, maybe, you know, the quote, I'm trying to, I yes. can't say the exact yes. quote. So, no, in, in 1848, just a few years after the Virginia minstrels and when Christie was first building these shows up in 1848, uh, he, uh, he was, um, uh, he was an orator, and, and he was he used very colorful language that resonates over the years. Uh, and he talked about minstrelsy as the filthy scum of white society who has stolen from us the complexion that is denied to them by nature to make money and pander to the co corporate uh, corrupt tastes of their fellow white citizens. So he blasted the minstrel show. And that quote has turned up in, in any number of books about minstrelsy. Uh, However, what never turns up in books is what he said six months later when he actually saw a minstrel show. And in fact, the books don't tell you when he said that first quote either. He was actually attending a performance of an abolitionist group called the Hutchinson Family Singers. Uh, and he was writing about them and abolitionism when he uh, issued that first blast against the minstrel show. Then he saw a minstrel show. And uh, he was very far-sighted. Uh, he uh, he 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 said, as you, as you indicate, that uh, 
there's some real talent, black talent on the stage up there. This is there may be an opportunity here. He still didn't embrace the minstrel show, certainly not white minstrel shows, but he saw that there was an opportunity here, and that's exactly what happened after the Civil War. It's exactly what happened that uh, minstrel shows put on by black Americans were the first opportunity for African Americans to really make a mark on the stage in front of the, the wider American public. And and in doing so, they they brought forth a different approach to music, to the spirituals. They brought a different approach to, um, uh, you know, their 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 uh, blues. A lot of the great blues singers of the 20s came out of minstrel black minstrel shows. Uh, it was a platform that allowed African Americans for the first time to really have an impact on American culture. And of course, we all know where that led led to enormous enormous. Um, contributions to to uh, blues and jazz and all that came after it, the kind of stuff right. that you feature on your show. Right, so, yeah, the the originators of the music, jazz, blues, spirituals, and it's something that I think I read in your, your the book Lost Sounds. The fact that a lot, you know, that you know, a lot of people write about the fact like the Fish Jubilee singers being the first, like, touring, mostly African-American singing group to go around, but people rarely talk about the minstrels at that time, the black minstrels. Yes, yes. And uh, so many uh, talented African-American performers came out of those minstrel shows. That's where they cut their teeth, their eye teeth. That's the Burt Williams, the people that really made a difference in American culture uh, across racial lines because whites went to these shows. They uh, they were advertised as the real thing. So, you know, people knew that this was, they were real. Now, some of those black minstrels also put on blackface. Uh, I was about to ask, you know, I was about to talk, you know, because you mentioned Bird Williams. And talk about that because that's something that a, a lot of people, it usually, it usually shocks them, but there was a movie, a TV movie that I saw back in 70, 1977 called Minstrel Man. Yes, yes. That gets into that, and that is a hard, hard movie to find. I've seen snippets of it on YouTube, but it's something that I don't want to say there are forces out there that don't want people to see it, but it's a very, it's a superb movie with starring a Glenn Turman, and it's about that whole period. Yes, and it, it's a dramatization, but it's a pretty accurate one in a lot of ways. It's a very hard-edged movie, and uh, as you say, it, it can be kind of hard to watch. But it, they they knew what they were doing in that movie, and it and it's true. There were uh, you know these all these conflicting kinds of pressures going on at the time, but uh, a large portion of the African American audience uh, and, and performers, this was their opportunity. This was their opportunity to get on stage, their opportunity to make money. Some of them became major celebrities, like Burt Williams, but others too. Uh, some of them uh, ran their own troops. There were some managers, black managers. That had never been possible before, never. So it was a real opportunity. Uh, that, that's a, a part of minstrelsy. I don't, I don't say it's all of minstrelsy. That's a part of it that uh, is not very widely understood. And uh, one of the and, and there was some the book list these troops. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I know that um, there was a famous comedian, Pick Meek Markham, whose, whose thing was "Here Come the Judge," 
Yes, yes. He, up until, if I'm not mistaken, the late 50s, 1950s, he was still in blackface. Oh, yes. That yes. he would perform in blackface. Right. Well, Burr Williams, who was a very uh, well-educated, very intelligent man, I should say, uh, wrote about this, about his use of blackface. He was a... Uh, he was he was a black American, but he put black he was light skinned and he put black face on and he said um, it liberated him because he was a he was a rather proper man uh, and it was a uh, it's called a minstrel mask it's it's a, a kind of a clown's mask to him that you could be behind and it enabled you to do things and say things and act in a way that would be awkward or, or difficult for you to do if you were in your natural appearance. So you put this mask on and you become a cartoon. You become something else. Uh, and, and now you're acting out a part of something apart from yourself. And, and he wrote about that more eloquently than I'm describing it as, as the reason why blackface meant so much to him and, and kind of freed him to become the uh, character, you know, we could describe his character, but the character that he played on the stage so successfully for many years. Right, and you know, if you know, listeners out there. And by the way, you can call in here and talk to Tim Brooks, the author of the book of Blackface Minstrel Show and Mass Media. The number here is five six three nine 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 three four seven nine. And if you want to learn more about Bert Williams, you can go online and find a couple of his silent movies um, where he plays the character. If I'm not mistaken, nobody, and you can see him and. There are stories about that Charlie Chaplin actually stole from him. He was so impressed <laughs> with what Burt Williams was doing. Cause, you know, if you look at the, you look at the silent movies of it, say, what is, what is this going on? It might seem corny, but you got to keep in mind what he was doing at the time Burt Williams was new. It had never been yeah. seen. And they said that Chaplin and some, you know, some other comedians at that time, Fatty Arbuckle, et cetera, they stole from him. They stole a lot of his bits. Yeah, he was very good at pantomime. He was very good at storytelling. That was his strength. Uh, he, he made many recordings, and they're basically storytelling recordings. He almost like reads or speaks the, the lyrics rather than sings them in most of his right. his records. And and that he was kind of a Black Will Rogers in a lot of ways. Uh, he 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 really could get the audience in the palm of his hand. And interestingly, he and his original partner George Walker. Um, formed an act in the 1890s when they were young, uh, which they called Two Real Coons. A coon was a derogatory term for African Americans. Uh, however, what they were saying in that is these these whites in blackface are imitators, we're the real thing. Okay, uh, And some of their early songs, and early they wrote their own songs, some of their early songs and routines they did were, we would consider certainly rather racist. But as soon as they got market clout, as soon as they became so popular that the, uh, the theaters and the managers were really after them because they could make a lot of money for them, uh, so they got power, they, they changed their material. They gradually changed their material. To material is much less about demeaning blacks and more about the human condition. And when uh, Walker died fairly young, unfortunately, uh, 
Bert Williams carried on all through the 19-teens up to the early 1920s, and he became a, a, a storyteller who almost never referred to race. He was referring to uh, the, the down-and-out guy who could be anybody, uh, right. and the, the nobody character, the Jonah man, as he called it. Uh, so as soon as he got the market power uh, within the industry to do that, he started changing uh, the, the material and uh, to a way that made a, uh, a black man a real human being in the eyes of his audience. And, and the, the audience, the white audience, America just loved it. They just ate it up. It's kind of like Bill Cosby back in the day when, when he started out. Uh, was was yeah, across uh, a name that a lot of people don't want to mention anymore. But you know, I mentioned him, Bill Cosby. But you know what? It, you know, Burton Williams reminds me of also is the poet, singer, activist Gil Scott Heron. When I compare the two, as far as both of them talking about the times, both of them doing it in a singing, but not really singing. And also, I think about as you're saying this some hip-hop artists who came out in the 1990s and all who originally were using constantly the N-word, but once they got some clout, their raps became more politically orientated. Mm-hmm. And it became a whole different thing, you know, to the, to the effect that some of the folks in the industry didn't like that clout, but that's a whole different story there, which I will do on a future show. But I want to, you know, I'm glad you brought up Burt Williams in the 1890s because you alluded to it earlier in the broadcast and you talk about it in the book, but there's a big shift as far as the type of minstrel show and the songs that are used and talk about that in the 1890s through like the early part of the 20th century, the dawn of the 20th century. Well, the, the minstrel show... I mean, part of what got me started on, on pulling this book together was having read in books at the Minstrel Show as as professional entertainment, as big-time entertainment, had died out by the end of the 1800s. And obviously it had, it had not. Uh, and uh, even in 1900, 1910, there were still big troops crisscrossing the country, and they were very, very popular, and they packed the theaters. Uh, and then the media picked up on them, uh, first recording, but then radio, and then uh, movies, especially after sound came in in the late 20s. Uh, and and minstrel shows are very big in all of those media. Uh, it changed somewhat. It certainly got less uh, racist, but they, in the, in the sense of the material and the songs that they were singing, however, they... And that's they what I was thinking about the, 18, the 1890 moment where... There's this, you know, there are a lot of these cool racist songs. There's a whole lot of them. And then it just, as you're saying, they go away. Well, one of the things I found out about the minstrel show that I didn't really realize until I did this research was that it was, uh, it was reflective of whatever popular music was at the time. And in the 1840s and 50s, it was all Stephen Foster because Stephen Foster was the, the big songwriter of that day. Uh, but you didn't hear Stephen Foster in the 1870s and 80s. You heard whatever was popular then. What happened in the 1890s and early 1900s is that there was a, a, a type of song that was uh, explicitly demeaning uh, African Americans and mocking them. This was the beginning of the Jim Crow era, remember. And uh, they were called coon songs. 
And when ragtime took off, very syncopated music, much more lively than the music before, uh, in the mid-1890s, many of those had lyrics that were these demeaning kinds of lyrics. So they, they went together. It seemed very modern at the time. Uh, and for about 20 years, uh, up until oh, the early 1910s, that was a major theme in popular music. I've written a whole article about that uh, separately. Uh, and uh, as long as those songs were popular, they were popular in sheet music, they were popular on the stage, they were popular they were in Broadway shows, they were also in the minstrel shows. Once those songs, you know, thankfully, started to fade away in the 1910s, in the lead of the World War I period, uh, they left the minstrel show, too, and you didn't hear them anymore. So there's a whole uh, line of thought that these were minstrel songs. They weren't really minstrel songs. They were the popular music of the day, and they shared the bill with Irish ballads and love songs and things that had nothing to do with, with uh, African Americans. There's an awful lot of stuff in the minstrel shows, in fact, that were not connected at all with with race. Uh, but the part this, this is really a surprise in one sense. It, and I'm going to do Tim right now, if you don't mind, because we've been talking about minstrel shows, but I'm going to give a little clip, if you don't mind, of a minstrel show. This is from the movie, which you talk about in your uh, book, uh, Minstrel Man, 1944. And I want my listeners to get a sense of what a minstrel show sounded like. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just so people can know what we're talking about. And so let's put that on right now, and I'll be right back. This is about a two-minute clip, so let's just play that right now. Okay. I was running to stop a fight. Who was fighting? Me and another fella. <laughs> Joe, Joe, what are you squirming for? What makes you so nervous? Uh, I ain't nervous. I'm just worried on account of my clothing store. I didn't know you had a clothing store. I didn't say I had a clothing store. You certainly said you had a clothing store. I did not say I had a clothing store. Did I say I had a clothing store? Uh, no. There's a nail here in my chair in my clothing store. Uh, bad jokes. <laughs> Terrible jokes, but that was the entertainment. That's from the movie Mr. Man 1944. It's different from right. the other movie we're talking about, Mr. Man in the 70s. But uh, 
I want you to talk about, because they mentioned the uh, term, I know a lot of listeners saying, what is the interlocutor tour? What is he talking about? Describe what actually is going on in a minstrel show, besides the blackface and all, just the other aspects. Well, the, the way the minstrel show evolved uh, very quickly in the 1840s and 1850s was that uh, there were these group of people on stage that I mentioned. Uh, that was became the first act of a minstrel show, and that was called the minstrel first part, where everybody's on stage. Uh, in the middle of the, it's usually a semicircle of, of uh, men up there. Uh, the ones on the end have the tambourine and the bones, like castanets that they click. Then there's somebody in the middle with a banjo and a fiddle and so forth. So the end men uh, are the two on the two ends, uh, and they were called tambo and bones after their instruments, tambo and bones. In the middle of the group on the stage was uh, a kind of an MC, which is called, who was called the interlocutor. Uh, sometimes he was called the middleman, but mostly it was interlocutor. And he was supposedly kind of running the show. So he would call on people to get up and sing a song. Uh, he would ask a question of one of the end men, and a joking kind of question, and the end men would uh, tell a joke in return, that sort of thing. How are you doing this morning, Mr. Bones? Uh, so the interlocutor kind of tied it all together in the middle. That's the first act. But then there was a second act called the Oleo, which was a succession of individual performances by people without everybody on stage. Then there was a third act called the Afterpiece, which was a one long sketch, usually mocking uh, a play or something like that, or a scene set in the South or something like that. So this three act kind of uh, um, uh, structure uh, emerged largely because of Christie and, and his development of the show uh, after those original uh, four guys got on the stage. And they got to be very big productions in the late uh, 1800s after the Civil War. They, there could be 40, 60, even 100 people on stage. So it's a big production by that time. And, and the clip yeah. I just played, if you go online and look at it on YouTube, there's about 50-some guys, and I should say women, too, because there's dancers and all on the stage at this moment. Now, one yeah. thing I want to ask you about is the interlocutor. I have read in other places that, and this is my opinion of it, too, is that was this like the overseer? Because it usually was a white guy, and they're all white, but he, this is the only one that was not in blackface. And was there a subtle thing about, well, these are the slaves and I'm in control as the overseer? Well, I've, I'm not so sure about that. I did a lot of study of both the stage minstrel shows from the playbills and things, and also the recordings that were made in the 1890s uh, replicating the opening of these shows. And the interlocutor, the man in the middle, uh, might or might not be in blackface. Often he was a, a white in white, a white face, a, a white man without makeup, but sometimes he wasn't. And in the uh, recordings, more often than not, he's one of the gang. He's not like the boss or the straw man. He's, he's, uh, he's on very friendly, comfortable terms with the, uh, with the others that are in the cast. So it could play out in different ways. Uh, I've, there are very, very few evidences of that theory that you just mentioned that I've seen in some books that he's supposed to be the straw boss. No, he's usually either more like an Ed Sullivan kind of uh, MC, kind, kind of just moving things along, or sometimes he's one of the guys. Uh, that happens as well. 
so it it varied a lot over the period, but uh, and there were some shows I should mention uh, that uh, the star was obvious was clearly not the interlocutor, uh, and the person in charge was not the interlocutor. It was one of the end men. Uh, who uh, was the jokester, of course, and the one that carried the, the humor of the show more than the interlocutor did. And uh, I give one example in which the uh, end man actually fires the interlocutor and says, get off the stage, you're not doing your job well. <laughs> so it, it could vary a lot, and it doesn't really fall into the, the kind of you know neat uh, racial lines that we like to attribute these things to. Yeah, it's a funny thing because you just mentioned Ed Sullivan. You talk in the book, but I didn't notice until I read your book. Ed Sullivan, what, in 1953, actually did a minstrel show on his show. And, and listen, some of the younger folks may not know Ed Sullivan, but at one time there were a lot of variety shows yes. on television. You know, a lot of those yes. on television. Ed, Ed Sullivan had the, the supreme one, the number one one. And he did in 53, if I'm not mistaken, a tribute to Ford Motor Company, their 50th anniversary, 100th, 50th anniversary, and he did a minstrel show on air. Yeah, that's, that, that's right. 1953 was the 50th anniversary of the Ford Motor Company, which had been founded in 1903. And uh, for that uh, celebration they were the sponsor of course for that uh, celebration he put on an old-fashioned minstrel show in blackface uh which i don't think is in, in available to view today they've suppressed it basically but i wonder uh, why the, but well there is another one that you can't well i'm just kidding with that but yeah i know i you know i'm glad you're going to talk about fred waring because i yeah, i saw fred that waring one show. talk about that 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 ran on Sunday nights right after Ed Sullivan, actually. Uh, it was an hour-long show. It was quite popular for a number of years. Uh, and uh, he put on a, a full stagings of a blackface minstrel show on three different occasions, 1950, 51, and uh, 53, I think, or 50, 52, and 53. Uh, and it's kind of uh, a long, <laughs> striking today. You see this thing, and there are the Fred Waring's Pennsylvanians all in blackface behind him. You say, what? <laughs> uh, and uh, they they use some dialect, not very heavy dialect. Uh, and they also, and, and the jokes and the songs are, are all non-racial, uh, but the blackface is still there. And that's one of the things that really the minstrel show to, to come under serious attack in the 1950s was the fact that it was still using blackface and, to some extent, still using uh, dialect. Those two things. The songs yeah. themselves and the jokes were not racial anymore, but, but those two things uh, were still there, and, of course, they were offensive. And it's all, you know, I mean, to me as African American, it's always shocking to see when you see, when I look at a minister show and I see it, it's just like, you know, that's not right. That's not right, and I've looked at a prior to reading your book and, you know, seeing some of these and seeing folks like Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland and Babes in Arms putting yeah. on a minstrel show, Bing Crosby, you name it. So many of these folks doing that. And we have a caller, and I'm going to pick this up now and see who we got here. Are you there, caller? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, that was just the days how things was going on in that time in history. You know, in the night in the late twenties, 
of the early 30s, there was black radio talk shows. And I can't think of the name of it. But I think if you do your research, you can find it. And then you had shows like Amos and Andy, which is very comical. Yeah, yeah we talked about yeah. that earlier. Yeah. And, you know, blackface is still done in France today. If you well, it's done in the it's done all over the world, actually. I was, we're going to get into that shortly. And, by the way, where are you mm-hmm. calling from? I'm curious. Where are you calling from? Well, I'm calling from the Midwest. I'm down in Louisiana now. And, you know, I'm going to tell you all something right. else. In New Orleans and also... Uh, South Carolina, like Charleston, the about 28% of freed blacks had slaves. And yeah, that's the stuff I did on a previous about, show. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, you're talking about in South Carolina, you were from 10 to 30,000, and 80 some odd percent of the masters were mulatto women. Yeah, that's, that's I know we're going to I'm going to get into that again on another show, but I want to thank you for calling because we want to keep the focus on yeah, the initial shows and black And one other thing too, talk about the well, you don't there's a there's a you know there's a museum in Chicago, the Sabo Museum. And oh, they yeah. have a lot of what's called ethnic notion memorabilia uh figurines and images. I guess they probably have more than any place else. That would be a good place to yeah, visit. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of it myself. But thank you oh, so okay. much, uh, caller. All right, take care. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Hey, Tim, I guess you heard that. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, we want to keep we want to keep it on point here. I want to make sure folks are on point. We're talking about the minstrel shows, but I appreciated what he was saying. And, you know, I want to, you know, I want to get back, you know, something you mentioned in the book that really made me laugh is that there was an attempt in the 20s to put a minstrel show on film during silent movies. Well, in the, And I in was the saying, 19th, how, are you, how are you going to do that? Well, um, yeah. there, was, <laughs> there were several attempts in the silent movie era. Uh, uh, sound came in widely uh, with 1927 and forward with a jazz singer and all that came after that. But before that, there were movies back to the 1890s uh, and the great train robbery movies like that. And in right. the, as early as 1905, 1905, when everything uh, was supposedly silent movies, uh, they worked up an act where they had a minstrel show uh, a silent movie of a minstrel show, and they had singers positioned behind the screen singing in synchronism with the action on the screen. So it looked like the people were actually singing and, and uh, telling jokes and so forth on the silent movie screen. It had to be uh, synchronized very carefully, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- oh, so yeah. as early as 1905, they were doing that. And in 1913... Uh, Thomas Edison, who had had much to do with the development of movies, I won't say he invented them, but he had a lot to do with it, um, came up with a a sound synchronization system where he recorded separately the soundtrack uh, and the film and then played them at the same time with a system that was linked together. Uh, And one of his films, which lasted about six minutes, was The Edison Minstrels. And I talk about that in the the book. Uh, And a picture from it, as a matter of fact. So even... 
uh, even in the silent era, there were temps. But it was really when sound came in in a big way in the late 20s that you had all kinds of movies uh, featuring minstrel shows. Yeah, I mean, it's um, very, I mean, it's, it's hard to look at, but, you know, a lot, and, and like you say in the book, a lot of these musicals that were using minstrel shows in the 30s and 40s, these basically Buzzy Berkeley movies that had minstrel themes in there, the typical minstrel show is not that elaborate. Oh, very these much things, so. No, that's absolutely I mean, these right. things once, were once like... Hollywood got a hold of it, it became something that nobody ever saw in the 1800s with with platoons of dancing girls and these Busby Berkeley aerial shots and huge stages with people dancing up and down the steps and so forth. I mean, typical kind of Hollywoodization <laughs> of whatever they touch, I guess. Oh, yeah. But they at they the do same time... Everything. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, I found uh, quite a number of minstrel shows recreated in westerns, which is interesting. And, of course, minstrel troops, small ones, did tour the West in the 1800s right. and performed at the mining camps and stuff. And those are usually lower-budget movies, and the minstrel shows that they depict in these westerns during the uh, 1940s, for example – are a lot more like minstrel shows really were because they were four, six, eight people, something like that, pretty simple instruments. Uh, And uh, so there were depictions on screen that were closer to the real thing, but but not the big uh, Hollywood musicals now. No, and uh, it's funny you mention the Western, you know, Westerns, because in doing the research for, you know, for your book, you know, reading the book and just doing some research on my own, I came across, Someone I really liked as a, as a kid. I used to look at in the 60s on Saturday morning westerns. And it's an actor named Rex Allen. Oh, yeah. And I came across him in blackface and it shocked me. <laughs> it just like threw me off. It's like, oh my God, one of the folks I was, I, it was a hero of mine, an Arizona kid, was in blackface. And I can oh, never, yeah. you know, I can never look at if I have to see his westerns again. I can never look at him because it's like, oh my god! But you know, but there's at the so time, many people that even, didn't even, uh-huh, go ahead. Even, even even the uh, black community was very divided on this. Whenever there was a controversy or somebody protested this back in the 30s or the 40s, there would be a counter to that in the in the black press from black spokesmen saying, no, 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 this is okay. This is our opportunity to get on stage. We're giving, we got work from this and so forth. And there would be a back and forth. Even Amos and Andy was very divided about whether, you know, in, oh, 1930, yeah. in 1931, back in the radio days, when Amos and Andy was like just new and was an enormous sensation on radio, <clears throat> even in, the, in performed by two white guys, of course, uh, Carell and Gosden, uh, in 1931, there were three major black newspapers that were distributed across the United States. Uh, one of them, the Pittsburgh Courier, started a uh, petition to take it off the right. air as being insulting to African Americans. The other two black newspapers, the Chicago Defender and the New York Age, both editorially opposed this and said no. Uh, we we disagree with this, and the the Chicago Defender actually gave an award to the the white creators of the show, and they staged a big celebration for them in the, one of the parks in Chicago. So the, there was fact, yeah they were the um, yeah they were uh, the head uh, 
the head act at the Bud Billigan parade in Chicago. Yeah. And what I what I read, Gosselin and Carell, they donated a lot of money to a lot of black organizations at that time. And it's really, it's really ironic because they're doing this, Amos and Andy, and also folks like Al Jolson um, and some other folks who are really in Fred Waring. These were folks that really were very progressive and liberal at the time as far as working for the cause of civil rights, which is really that's something. That's a, that's a show in itself. That, that, that is but, You know, Eddie Cantor. Yeah, Eddie Cantor, who's in, you know, he, he was in blackface in a lot of his movies, but he was very, they were devoted to bettering the rights of others. And uh, he really was. Fascinating. There's, a, there's a very interesting interview that he gave. He came to the offices of the New York Age, which was the major black newspaper in New York in the mid-30s. Uh, and they, they, they interviewed him very favorably. He talked about, he was Jewish, of course, and he talked how much they had in common in one, many ways. And what they were proudest of was the fact that he had taken a, uh, a little-known uh, pair of dancers, young dancers, called the Nicholas Brothers, and put them in his latest film oh, yeah. and given them a big showcase. You know, and and obviously this was a, they were very talented because the Nicholas Brothers, and uh, and he went out of his way to put them in a film that he knew all of America was going to see because he was a big star at the time. So the, yes, he he and uh, Jolson as well, and uh, Waring as well, and others uh, personally very liberal and were very progressive and were very much, uh, I mean Waring. <laughs> You know, refused to put it when he was touring the South. He toured a lot. Uh, if they wouldn't uh, provide accommodations for the black member of his of his chorus, he he walked out. <laughs> and he said, you know, either you take all of us or you take none of us, kind of thing. So yes, they they that was one thing I think that uh, made the uh, the black community look at this a little more nuanced way than than we tend to from a distance. Yeah, it's you know, it's that whole and honest. It's, it's like the American story. It's, it's kind of everything's kind of a contradiction. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's this bad, but then there's this good. And it's just so, you know, the study of just what you've done, the study of blackface and minstrels, it's just fascinating. Now, we're just touching. I mean, I want folks to get the book out there. First of all, the book is The Blackface Minstrel Show in Mass Media. The author we're talking to today is Tim Brooks. It's on McFarland Press. And it's and I have to say, it's, it's about entertainment, but more so to me, it's a history book of America prior to the Civil War, right after the War 1812, until, I want to say today. And it yes. really just talks about that psychic, the double, as W.B. Du Bois talked about, the double consciousness that African Americans have in this country. And I have to say, too, the double consciousness that white folks have in this country, as far as on the one hand, with someone like a Fred Waring or Eddie Cantor, you know, having a minstrel show or being in blackface, but on the other hand, working to better the rights of African Americans by donating money, by appearing places, it's just this whole fascinating, weird contradiction in this country. That yeah. just, it, it is so amazing. 
Yes, and it 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 takes time. It takes too much time in some ways, but it takes time to to work these things out because there are people on both sides of it, and uh, there there are good and there's bad often mixed up together. So what right. do, what do you say when it's when it's the kind of entertainment that gave uh, black Americans the stage and a and a and a voice to speak to all Americans? But it's also something that was demeaning to African Americans. I mean, yeah, it's so very is demeaning, it? very kind of both. It's both, you know, and it's a funny, you know, not to change the subject in one sense, but it's part of that. During that same period in the late 19th century, and I had this author on my show many years ago, so Ohio State University professor uh, Katrina Mitchell, she wrote a book called Living with Lynching. And it's about, there were a series at the time of plays about lynching because lynching was uh, terrible, you know, that was going on all over the country at that time in the late 19th century, early part of the 20th century. And what she says in this book, and it's always stuck with me, is that on the one hand, you had folks in the African-American community that obviously were opposed to lynching. But then you had a segment that were for it because they believed that the folks were being lynched were, quote, the bad Negroes, and they had to be lynched. And it's just this whole dichotomy that just, you know, in this country, and it just goes on and on about every subject you can think of. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but I would find it hard to defend lynching on any level. I would, too. I mean, that's what we talked about. She... She was shocked when she did the research on it and saw that because she never thought she would expect to see that. But well, there were no, like but, but articles. I, I would, yeah, I, I would question how widely that alternate view was held, though, uh, because I know I haven't seen much of it. In, uh, I've, I've read a lot of the right. black press. And, uh, however, for the minstrel show, it was a genuine divide. I mean, there was really – a major split. I told, as I mentioned, one newspaper said take it off, take Emerson Andy off the air. The other two said no, <laughs> and uh, it was a it was a major divide. Uh, even Amos and Andy on television, which was black actors, as you oh, that probably was, yeah. recall, uh, that was beloved by a, a lot of black television viewers because you know there were uh, black americans they were getting a show of their own and you know what it's a genuinely funny show it it takes place entirely within a black world so it's not black and white together uh and within that show i showed this uh a tape of this to my class i was teaching once which had um, black students in the class uh and they all agreed it was a funny show uh there were a mix of characters in it some of whom were not uh, demeaning, or, or uh, uh, I mean, we think of uh, Amos, and we think of uh, Algonquin J. Calhoun, the, the shady lawyer, uh, but there's also uh, black policemen. Uh, there are black doctors. There are black Doc, yeah, lawyers. Yeah, and you yeah. saw a community that actually had, uh, you know, within the black community, some very well-spoken and educated and intelligent. Uh, people in it, uh, role model types, uh, as well as the clowns. Uh, you see, right. kind of. And I, I, you know, and I have a whole collection of those movies. I mean, those TV shows. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 a fascinating thing to look at those 
and realize I'm going to do a whole separate show on Amos and Andy. I've been saying that for years. I'm going to do one. I have to do one because you, as you were saying, you have professionals in it, and they're not living. They're living in a brownstone in Harlem, and these are middle-class folks, and these are folks, you know, Kingfish and Andy and Amos, they are dressed well. They're not buffoons. The only issue I've always had with the show is the character of Lightning, which is a story in itself. Yeah, yeah the janitor. Lightning's a little, he gets a little too demeaning. His stuff he does is ridiculous. But, but getting back to our subject here, as far as uh, the minstrel shows and all, I want you to talk about in the last few minutes we have for the show. And listeners, you can call in at 563-999-3479 and talk to Tim Brooks about the subject. I want you to talk about something that I discovered only early last year that shocked the daylights out of me. Talk about the black and white minstrel show out of Britain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a British show. Uh, and uh, Britain uh, had a, a parallel uh, history of minstrel shows to the United States. I always was curious about that. Why? I mean, there's no uh, South in, in, in England. You know, there's, uh, there wasn't much of a black population there at all. But the uh, from the time of the original uh, Virginia minstrels, they went to England. That's the first place they went out of the country to, to perform. Uh, and, it, and it caught on there too, and there were English troops. Uh, and in the 1950s, when minstrelsy was finally uh, being put off the air here in the United States because the protests had grown loud enough by then, uh, they started a show called the Black and White Minstrel Show, which was kind of a variety show, but the, the men in the show were all in blackface. Uh, and uh, that lasted for 20 years. It was still running in the 1970s, long after minstrelsy was was never seen on television here. Uh, and uh, it was an extremely popular program, uh, especially in the 1960s. It was by far the biggest show on British television. Uh, they also put out albums of their songs, and those were bestsellers. They were the biggest sellers before the Beatles, actually, in, in England. And uh, today... Uh, you ask somebody who's old enough to have been around in that era uh, about the show, and likely they'll say, oh, I never saw that, or really? <laughs> or, oh, it was on once when I was walking by the TV. They disown it. <laughs> they, they kind of right. pretend it didn't exist. <laughs> and yet it was... And I, and I never heard of it until I... And I don't know how I found it on... I, I don't even know what I, I was looking... I don't know what I was looking for, but it just, like, popped up, and I said, oh, my God. Yeah, there are some clips. It was a clip from the seventies. Yes, all the way up to nineteen seventy-eight, and they had a touring unit. Uh, The Black and White Minstrels also went on tour, and that lasted into the nineteen eighties. So it was very big, despite the fact they all seem very embarrassed by it now. The uh, the BBC would not release any of the films or any of the. They never rerun it. They had a big anniversary celebration of the anniversary of the BBC. They never mentioned this biggest show they had in the, <laughs> in the 1960s. So <laughs> leave it to the British. Uh, there are a few clips well, on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a couple of those clips, and it was just shocking when I first saw that. And still, if I look at it now, it still shocks me. But that brings to a point. What you know, and I'm glad. You know, I really again want to tell you, Tim. I'm happy to have you on today, and I'm so glad that you wrote this book. Because 
What you just mentioned as far as the British show is something that continues in this country as far as keeping a part of history hidden. I mean, there are folks who don't, don't want to talk about the subject at all. It doesn't matter if they're white, black, you know. And I want you to just comment on that and the importance of having not only books that, the book that you wrote, but just knowing about that history. Talk about that. Well, I, I think that sometimes we fall into the trap of, of seeing uh, the past and history as a, in a car, kind of a cartoon where everything is extreme. Uh, and history isn't like that. It's a mix of opposing forces. And you never really understand how progress is made over time until you understand these this push and pull of these different forces going on. That's the historicism that I was talking about before. So the th- the interesting thing uh, about the minstrel show, one of the things I take from it is, well, why did it last for 100 years? Not 50 years, but 100 years, right up to the television era. And it goes back to this entertainment that I was talking about. Uh, and what is it that finally turned the tide? In the And why did it take so long to turn the tide? I mean, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who was generally considered to be a progressive, was, was went to the minstrel show. Abraham Lincoln, who signed the Emancipation Par- right. Proclamation, went to the minstrel show. I mean, it was uh, uh, and, and uh, Stephen Douglas uh, or um, Frederick Douglass earlier. You know, when he actually saw one, said, "Well, maybe there's something here." Uh, so, you know, it it was it was really widely accepted, uh, and it was not focused on as being racist. It, it seems hard to understand today, but when you're up close to something, uh, it may look different than it looks like when you're at a distance from it, and we're looking at it from a distance now. So I, th- I think we have to be careful when we uh, judge anything uh, too extreme, like it's all good or it's all bad. That's usually not the case. I mean, how many people didn't know? Yeah, and, about I, and I have to say again, as as African American male, and putting myself in that era, and I probably would have been in the field somewhere on a plantation or something, but not probably not a free African American at that time. It would just, I would feel like Frederick Douglass. I would really have felt that way, really denouncing it at the time, and even in the twenties, thirties, and just still denouncing it. On the one hand, but on the other hand, I could understand how it did benefit those African-Americans who went into entertainment and used that as a vehicle to progress. And I have no, you you know, I don't have issues with that. Yeah. You know, if you could sit down and have a conversation with Frederick Douglass, he would probably tell you what he said in that second quote. He would say, you're right. I think this is. You know, there's there's a lot of aspects of this that are really bad and that are really demeaning our people. But he said, stop and think for a minute. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to yeah. get our message in front of the wide American public in a in a positive way and to make change. Uh, I mean, he was a very very far-sighted person. So that's what I mean by looking at things as all good or all bad. They're often a mix of those things. And they it's like the old. Uh... It's like the old Hattie McDaniels line that, oh, I'm sorry, what the Hattie McDaniels? Louise Beavers, who played maids in tons of movies in the 30s and 40s and early 50s. Right. And she said, basically, I could either be a maid in Hollywood and make $1,000 a 
a week, or I could be a maid in real life and make $50 a week. <laughs> yeah. And she made the choice. She made a choice, and she, at the same time, was able to become a strong proponent of the uh, unions in uh, Hollywood and just, you know, did a lot of things that she couldn't do ordinarily if she was a maid, period, a real, you know, a real maid. So it is, yeah. you know, it's like you say, it's this whole contradiction. It's just, you have to look at the, you know, you have to look at what's going on in the total era and all of that. And I just want people out there who are listening to the show to please get the book, please read it. It has become, and I'm not saying it's because you're just on the air here. And I wanted to say, you know, I was hoping I could thank you for the first the book, first book I discovered you, uh, The Lost Sounds. But I can just say thank you for doing this work and doing the research and doing, you know, and doing monumental work that no one else is doing out there. And I really appreciate it. And it helps me as far as this growth, as far as learning the role of African-Americans in the entertainment industry and some of it bad, some of it good, but you have been a proponent and pioneer of bringing that information out. And I think without you, there will be a lot of history that's missing. So I just want to thank you so much for doing this stuff and want to know what you're going to be doing next as far as your (laughs) next uh, Oh, I, I don't know. It may be on a different subject entirely. I mean, some of my books are about very different subjects, of course. Uh, yeah, because we didn't even get into the whole television and radio. I mean, you do a whole, you got a whole encyclopedia on uh, television. Yes. It's fascinating. Yes. yes, I've done several books on television and several on the recording industry uh, as well. So I'm not sure. And I'm very interested in copyright and how that varies parts of our history, too. So maybe it'll be about that. And if anyone wants to get a hold of you, oh, go ahead. So anyone wants to get a hold of you, Tim, where, what website should they go to? Where, you know, where can they reach you? Well, it's fairly easy to remember. It's timbrooks.com, www.timbrooks.com or timbrooks.net. They both work. Uh, And that's my website. And that will have uh, information about my books and a lot of uh, things you can look up. Uh, about George W. Johnson, the first black recording star. Oh, example. we didn't even touch you. We didn't even get it to him. That's something <laughs> else. That's a subject in itself. That's a, that's a show. In yeah. fact, Tim, I'd like to invite you on. Can I invite you on again at some point this year? Sure. I'd be happy to. Because I really want to get into the whole thing about the, you know, the whistling blank. And, you know, that whole, that's the, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating, that whole thing that you talk about in, in this book and also, but mainly in Lost Sound. So again, Tim, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. I'll be having you on again. I really appreciate that. I appreciate all the work you're doing. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Greg. I hope to meet you in person one day. I hope to get an autograph of the book from you. So thank you so much. Okay. All right, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. And again, that was Tim Brooks, the author of the book, The Blackface Minstrel Show and Mass Media. It's on McFarland Press. And as I was saying, it it is a book about entertainment, but more so it's about history of African Americans and the white community from after 1812 until now. You know, because, you know, we're still talking about blackface in the 21st century. We still got folks who don't get it. It's like, well, you know, those are all blackface. There's all wrong with that. 
But you got to know your history and know how it, it you know, is something that you shouldn't be doing now. The fact that it is, it was popular for so many years and still in some circles, as you see on a number of college campuses, still popular at times in some sororities and fraternities. It's just, it's, it's mind-boggling this day and age. It's just something. But anyway, we'll be talking more about that in future shows. But I'm going to leave you today. We lost a giant in music, not just jazz music, but music in general. I'm talking about the the great McCoy Tyner, the pianist who passed earlier this week. And I'm going to play a song that he wrote um, called Search for Peace. It was on the uh, album The Real McCoy. that has uh, Ron Carter on bass, has uh, Joe Henderson on sax, and Elvin Jones on drums, and McCoy Tyner on piano, and Search for Peace. This is Greg Rasheed, and I want to say go in love and go in peace. We'll see you next time on The Root and Root Show. And if you get an opportunity out there, please volunteer somewhere. Do something to help your community to make it better. You know, do something for yourself to make yourself better. Go in love and go in peace. And let's leave you now with McCoy Tyner, Search for Peace.
Spread the knowledge, share the power.